Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you especially in Prince William and Montgomery County and Loudoun, as well as others who are online even as we're opening up every week more opportunities to come together in person, we invite you to do that. Uh, so feel free to go to the website just each week, find out how you can be a part of one of our gatherings in person. This Wednesday marks the 36-year anniversary of the day I publicly declared that I was a follower of Jesus through baptism. And I was thinking back this week to my youthful zeal to follow Jesus, to lead other people to Jesus, and I pulled out an old yearbook of mine. So yes, it was one of those weeks around my house with my kids walking through stories from high school. I'll put a couple of pictures up here on the screen for your mild entertainment. First, there's, uh, there's yours truly right there in the middle in my senior year, so I uh, was looking through just different pictures. Here we were at my house making a homecoming float. We were playing a rival school called the Patriots, so we made a big toilet bowl on the back of this trailer and wrote, flush the Patriots. So I will refrain from showing you the picture of me and some buddies of mine painting our school name on our chests at the game later that night, so that would not be appropriate. But then I came across this picture of leading a Bible study one morning at school, and I remember how I decided to carry that Bible in my hands everywhere I went in school because I wanted to share about Jesus with everybody I could. I remember, I remember leading are taking this yearbook at, at different points and like praying over every single face, like every single name. God, I pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with that person. I pray that this person would come to faith in Jesus. I remember in addition to that Bible study in the schools, starting a Bible study at home and just inviting friends to come over one night each week. Sometimes we'd have a big event in our yard with a bunch of pizza and just would invite people to come hear the gospel. And it was really humbling looking back in this book and seeing people whose friends who came to faith in Jesus during those days. So why, why, do, I, why do I share this with you? <laughs> Throw this over here. Why? Why do I go down high school memory lane with you so you might think I was some giant of faith in grade school? Certainly not. I'm sharing this with you because in the years since then, I have found it is a fight to keep that kind of perspective in my life. To keep that kind of zeal and that kind of urgency for the names and faces of people right around me on a daily 
basis. Like I think about that urgency I had to lead every face, every name, every person I knew. I knew I had a little bit of time with them before we graduated. So how can I make the most of that time? And I think about my life today and so often the busyness of life can cloud that perspective and drown out that urgency. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in this. I'm guessing we all get caught up in so many different things every day. Maybe it's school for you as a student. For others, it's work to do, meetings to have, money to earn, appointments to make, assignments to complete, errands to run, boxes to check, people to see, mouths to feed, diapers to change. I could go on and go on with so many things in our lives every day that we can lose perspective on what's going to matter 10 trillion years from today. Like, do these people around me know Jesus? Do these people, these names, these faces that I work with or go to school with or live next to or even just run into at a store or a restaurant, do they know Jesus? Because that's what's going to matter forever for them. So today, I want to call all of us based on God's word, to live for what is going to matter forever. To rise above the day-to-day perspective of all of our lives and live for what's going to matter 10 trillion years from today. And to be clear, I don't want to call us to add something else to our already full plates but for us to see everything on our plates with a different perspective, to see how we are surrounded every single day by people who need Jesus and to have as a constant filter in our minds, how can I best lead them to Jesus? When we have that filter, it will radically change the way our lives look every day and it will radically change others lives for all of eternity so we're now in week three of this series on the conscience and we've seen three questions that we need to ask as we make decisions on a daily basis so i'm going to put them up here on the screen as review first question we saw was what does the bible say and we saw if we want to live with a good clean conscience and experience all that comes with that, intimacy with God, true success in life, and unity in the church, and to live for what matters forever in this world, and we need to align our conscience with whatever God's word says. But then, so when the Bible is not clear on what to do in a certain situation, we need to ask the second question, what does my conscience say? So what do I sense as best as I can is right or wrong or good or best in a specific situation. But then we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that if we stop with these first two questions, we won't have a good, clean conscience because we'll be totally focused on ourselves, which is not the way God has called us to live. So we need to ask a third question. 
And I've phrased this one a little bit different than I did last week after thinking about it more because I really want to get to the essence of what 1 Corinthians 8 teaches us. So third question, how can I best build up other Christians? I think the question, the way I phrased it last week, what is, what is the effect on other Christians? So that's certainly generally, but specifically, how can I best build up other Christians knowing there may be a situation where I can do something with a good conscience, but if that will cause my brother or sister in Christ to stumble or will tear them down in some way, then I will choose not to do it because I want to build up others in love. We use the illustration of holding ropes with one another while holding on to our convictions without getting puffed up by those convictions. And I will add, it's been encouraging this week to get emails from parents who went out and bought their kids those bumper whatever balls that we were using last week. So I'm glad I was able to fuel kids fun this week with a sermon illustration from last week. But so that was was the picture. How can we build others up, hold on to our convictions while loving one another? But that's not all. Because the Bible makes clear right after 1 Corinthians 8 and what we're about to look at in 1 Corinthians 9 that there's another question we need to ask. So I'm going to go ahead and give it to you, and then I want to show it to you in God's Word. So we need to ask a fourth question, and that question is, how can I best lead non-Christians to Jesus? How can I best lead people who don't know Jesus to relationship with Jesus? And asking that question takes our lives to an entirely new level. For you and I to have as part of the filter that affects everything we do every day and all kinds of decisions to ask, how can I best lead people without Jesus to Jesus? And if my conscience says it's fine to do something, And it may be even fine for other Christians if I'm doing these things. But if it may hinder someone from coming to faith in Jesus, then I won't do it. Because I'm going to do everything I can to lead people to Jesus. This, God says, is critical to a good conscience. Let me show it to you. So we're going to read all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's 27 verses. But try to follow along and Get the feel of what Paul, who's writing this word here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying. Because if we will realize what the Bible is saying here, it will revolutionize, radically change our everyday lives in ways that will yield fruit for trillions of years in other people's lives. I can't emphasize how important what we are talking about today is, not just for you, but for people all around you, for us to hear what God's Word is saying. So let's, let's, let's hear 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then think about what God is telling us through it. Verse 1 says, Am I not free? This is Paul writing, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am for you, for you the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's basically talking about his relationship with them and helping starting this church and leading them to Christ. And he writes in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, and he quotes from the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. God, please help us to understand what we just read and to apply it to our lives every day, like starting today, this week. We, we pray that in the next few minutes you would supernaturally reorient the way we view our everyday lives so that more people might experience eternal life with you. We pray that you would speak to us now in a way that would change others' lives for all of eternity. Even this week, God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're, if you're taking notes, there's a ton in what we just read, but here's the main truth I want to show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You might write it down. God calls you to reorient your conscience around how you can best lead people near you and far from you to Jesus. 
So I'm, I'm trying to make this as personal as I can for each of our lives, and I include myself in this, so I need to hear this, so, so David, or insert your name, God calls you to reorient your conscience around how you can best lead other people near you and far from you to Jesus. Now, we got 27 verses in 1 Corinthians 9. What I want to hone in, though, from the start here on is one word that Paul uses to describe himself and not just himself, but you and me as a Christian. So for every follower of Jesus, this is the way 1 Corinthians chapter 9 describes you. It's in verse 19 where Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself, now here's the word, a servant to all. And the word Paul uses for servant there was a common word for a slave in the first century. This is Paul saying, as a follower of Jesus, I am a servant, a slave to others, specifically to people around Jesus, in order that I might win more of them. He starts using this language of winning people, and we know he's talking about leading them to Jesus, because when you get down a couple verses later in verse 22, he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means, whatever it takes, I might save some. Now, this may sound like old school religious language here, like I want to win people, I want to save people. And some of you aren't Christians. This language may actually sound offensive to you. And a Christian wants to save me? And I, and I get it. How this language can found old school, sound old school or even offensive. But think about it this way. Especially if, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Imagine with me for a moment. Just imagine with me that the message of the Bible is true. So even though you may not believe it yet, just imagine for a moment that the message of the Bible is true. That God created all people, including you and me, for the purpose of knowing and enjoying him forever. That we were all created to find ultimate meaning and joy and fulfillment in relationship with God. That's what the Bible teaches. But we have all sinned against God. You have, I have, we've turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. And our sin separates us from God. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from God in judgment due our sin, like forever and ever and ever when we die. But the message of the Bible is that God loves us, and God has not left us alone in this state of separation from him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus who lived a life of no sin and then died on the cross for the sins of anyone who trusts in his love. And then Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and the grave so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, what you have done, you can be totally forgiven of your sin restored to relationship with God, to have everlasting life with him 
like forever and ever and ever through faith in Jesus. So this is the message of the Bible. So imagine for a moment that that message is true. And if that's true, and you're not a follower of Jesus, means you've not placed your faith in Jesus, you're separated from God on a road that leads to eternal judgment, do your sin, which again, I, I know may sound like a stretch at this point, but just imagine that's true. If that was true, wouldn't you want someone to share this message with you? That was true. Wouldn't you want someone to see their lives saying, I, I live to serve you with this message. Like, I want to make this message known. I'm going to reorient my life around getting this message to you. Well, of course you would. When you, when you think, okay, if this message is true, then what would you think of a Christian if they knew this message and they didn't share it with you. They just focused on what was best for themselves. They spent all their time around other Christians and never shared that with you. You would think, they, they clearly don't love me. They clearly don't care about me. You'd think that's, they, they must hate you in order to keep this message from you. I fear this is how many times Maybe not intentionally, but implicitly, we as Christians are living. Spend all our time around other Christians. And even like we talked about last week, like going back and forth with other Christians. And meanwhile, there's people around us, scores of them, millions of them in this city, who, who right now are on a road that leads to it, eternal judgment. Like if we believe this message is true, then we will share this message. We'll see ourselves. We, we exist to serve people around us with this good news. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I love the people around me so much that I'll do whatever I can to love and serve and share this message with them. I'm going to reorient my conscience, my decisions on a daily basis in order to share about eternal life in Jesus with them. This is the posture of a Christian a servant of people without Jesus. And look at how this played out. So what does that mean practically? Well, think about how this played out practically in Paul's life, and we'll start to think about how this plays out practically in our lives. In at least two ways. One, the Bible says, as a servant of people without Jesus, you relinquish your rights in order to lead people to Jesus. Now, when I use that word rights here, let me be clear what I mean, what the Bible means by this word. The Bible's not talking primarily here about rights in a governmental sense, which I'm guessing is where our minds most quickly go, the rights we may have as a citizen. That's not what Paul's talking about here. As important as those rights are, think more in a godly sense, not just in a governmental sense, but a godly sense. The Bible's talking about the rights that are given to us by God. And Paul is saying in this passage, as a follower of Jesus, I relinquish rights that I have from God in order to lead people to Jesus. I mean, let me show this to you. Just look at how many times, particularly in the first half of this chapter, Paul uses the word right or rights. Just circle every time you see it in your Bible. Start in verse 4. Do not have the right to eat and drink. Do not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. And you jump down to verse 12. 
others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. A couple more, verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing, that one doesn't count, these things to secure any such provision. And then verse 18. What then is my reward? Then in my preaching I may pray, present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's seven different times Paul's talking about his rights. And the point he's making here goes back to what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul was encouraging, if you remember, Christians not to eat food that have been sacrificed to idols because even though you may have a right to eat that food before God, if doing so would cause other Christians that stumble in their faith and you don't eat it. So now we come to chapter 9 and verse 4, he starts talking about his right to eat and drink. And verse 5, he starts talking about his right to have a wife. In verse 6, he talks about his right to be paid for what he does in serving the church. And he camps out on that all the way down to verse 18. It's basically talking about how leader in the church has a right to financial support from the church. Now, I'll be honest, that feels a little bit awkward for me to talk about, but it's in the Bible, so God's Word teaches the church should support various leaders based on, there's all kinds of pictures we see in 1 Corinthians 9, common practice, like God uses examples of soldiers and farmers and shepherds, even oxen receiving support for their hard work. A pattern that the Bible says the church should reflect. We read, we're reading right now in Numbers in our Bible reading, about how God made provision for Levites and people who worked in the temple in different ways. And then in verse 14, the Bible says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And that's a reference to places like Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, where God called his people to provide for those who were leading in the church in different ways. So if I could just pause just real briefly at this point, based on what the Bible is saying here, I want to thank you as a church family on behalf of staff in this church family who you give generously to support in their work and in their families. I want to thank you and encourage you. Be encouraged. That is a biblical thing to do in right and appropriate ways. But the point Paul's making here is he had this right to financial support from the church at Corinth. After all, he planted this church. But he had relinquished that right for the spread of the gospel in Corinth. Now, it's interesting. There were other times when Paul took financial support from churches. But here in Corinth, and some other times, he relinquished that right for the spread of the gospel in that city. And we're not exactly sure why that was the case here in Corinth. But when you look at verse 12, he said... I'm not making use of this right because I don't want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So apparently, Paul discerned that there might be some obstacle to the spread of the gospel if he was taking financial support in Corinth. So he said, I'm going to relinquish that right. Even though I could take it, I'm not going to do that. So maybe as a contemporary example, and let me be clear, I'm not putting myself on the level of Paul in any way. So please hear my heart in this, but... This is one of the reasons why I personally have made the decision not to take any profit from books that I've written up to this point. And that's not me saying that every pastor or every Christian, for that matter, who writes a book should do the same thing. No, I don't believe 
it's wrong for me to benefit materially from what I've written. So in that sense, I have a right to be compensated by it. At the same time, I don't believe that would be best for the message I've written in these books. So I've come to the conclusion at this point that it's best for the sake of that message not to take profit from those books. I'm not even saying I won't profit from anything like that in the future. I don't know. The point is, what the Bible is saying here is we need to look at everything we do through the lens of what is best, not just for the building up of the church, what is best for the spread of the gospel message through my life. And that will inevitably involve all of us relinquishing different rights that we have. So what does this mean, like relinquish your rights? Like think about the rights in our lives. Think about your life. You have a right to friends, marriage, family, safety, security, health, happiness. You have a right to eat, drink, watch, wear, read, study, listen to, say whatever you want. You have a right to organize your schedule and spend your time and choose your career and make your money and use your money, take your vacation, plan your retirement. In the end, you have a right to do what you want to do or go where you want to go and live how you want to live. After all, we're Americans, right? Maybe more than any people in any other country or culture in the world today, we're familiar with our rights. We cling to our rights. That's why this text is so important, especially for us. Because God calls us to relinquish, let go of various rights in order to lead other people to Jesus. And that is a very different way to live in this country, this culture, this world. Because according to the world around us, we have a right to make a lot of money and use it however we want, right? We have a right to be safe and secure. We have a right to do what we want to do in this world. But Jesus actually calls us to let go of some of these rights for the sake of others in the world who don't know Jesus. So let me give you just a few practical examples. I was thinking, how, how do I see this playing out like right now in our church family, even over the last week or two, in small and big ways? Like yesterday, there were some of you in our church family who had a right to a nice, comfortable, restful Saturday morning. But instead, you relinquished that right to be out at one of our outreach sites, sharing the gospel with people in our city. I think about the approximately 100 people who are in our missionary pipeline right now as a church who are working to move to another country for the spread of the gospel, some of whom spent yesterday all day in this building here doing, from all of our locations, doing missionary training. And they know that what they're doing will involve relinquishing rights to safety and security in this country to go to places of great risk to share the gospel. Or I think about the 50 people meeting together over Zoom the last couple of weeks who are all considering how to foster or adopt children into their families, knowing they're relinquishing a variety of rights in their lives to lead children in need to Jesus. I think about one person I was meeting with this last week. He and his wife and their kids are downsizing from their nice house to live in an RV park, at least for a while, to free up more resources for the spread of the gospel. 
I was meeting with a doctor this week who has relinquished his right to make a whole lot of money here in the U.S. Instead, he's about to get on a plane, go to an unreached part of the world, and use his medical expertise to share the gospel there. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, the Bible's not saying every person needs to do all of these things. You need to feel guilty if you don't do this or this or this. But the Bible is saying, this is what it means for all of us to be a follower of Jesus. It means we gladly let go of our rights in order to lead people to Jesus. And now we're starting to see how revolutionary this passage really is. And how radically different it is than the way of this world and the way even the church world often thinks. And we're not just playing a game here Sunday by Sunday. We're giving our lives for what matters forever. In a world that says you have a right to all these things, God's word is saying you let go of those things in order to lead people to Jesus. And this really isn't radical as much as it is biblical. This is the gospel, isn't it? Think about it. Jesus laid aside his rights to come to this earth, to die on a cross for our sins. So Christians in America, it makes no sense for us to stand beside the cross of Jesus Christ while we insist on holding on to all of our rights. Now we relinquish rights in order to lead people to Jesus. And keep going practically here in 1 Corinthians 9. Second, what it means to be a Christian is you rearrange your life in order to lead people to Jesus. You rearrange your life right after Paul talks about being a servant to people without Jesus in order to lead them to Jesus. He says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's saying here, I don't live under the Old Testament Jewish law, but to the extent that I can obey God under that law, then I'll follow that law whenever I'm around Jewish people. I'll eat what they eat. I'll abstain from what they abstain from if it will help me lead Jewish people to Jesus. And he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. So now he's talking about Gentiles, and he's saying, I'll eat something different there. I'll do whatever it takes, as long as it's not sin. Obviously, he's not going to sin in order to lead people to Jesus, but under the law of God, what does God's word say? That's driving everything. But as long as God's word allows this, I'm going to rearrange my life in every way I can to lead Gentiles to Jesus. And then he gets to verse 24 and he starts using this imagery of a runner in a race. Think like an Olympic athlete. Corinth hosted Olympic type games. Listen to the language he uses. It says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In verse 27 he says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Now think about an Olympic type athlete. Read these verses. Think Michael Phelps, right? More medals than any other athlete in Olympic history, 28 of them. Like if, if he were a country, he would have more medals than 75% of countries in the history of the Olympics, the summer games. And think about his training regimen to get those medals during peak seasons, swimming 80,000 meters a week, twice a day for hours and hours each day, 
at one point trained in the water for 1,800 consecutive days. That's almost five years with no break from the water for a day. And that's in addition to weightlifting and other strength training. And that's in addition to eating 12,000 calories a day for breakfast. It's three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayo, two cups of coffee, a five-egg omelet, a bowl of maize or grits, three slices of French toast, and three chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast. For lunch, it's a pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo, and about 1,000 calories worth of energy drinks. For dinner, it's another pound of pasta, a whole pizza, a whole meat pizza, and another 1,000 calories of energy drinks. And that's not to mention the chips, Oreos, and Reese's peanut butter cups he eats throughout the day as snacks. <laughs> Some of you kids are like, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> Mom, I want to be an Olympian. Chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast, Reese's peanut butter cups throughout the day, and pizza every night. So that's not what uh, the takeaway is from this. But suffice to say, Michael Phelps has rearranged re rearranged his life around winning medals in the Olympics. And the Bible is, God is saying to us right now, if athletes will do that to get a perishable wreath, it's perishable. In the first century, it was a crown of leaves. Today, it's a circular medal. But I'm saying, if they will rearrange their lives for something that will perish, that will fade away, it won't last then why are we not rearranging our lives for that which will never, ever perish? For a prize that will never perish. And think, well, what's the prize? I wish we had more time to go into biblical teaching about rewards in heaven, but I'll, just, I'll say it's a twofold picture here in 1 Corinthians 9. One, it's the reward of other people's salvation. So take a crown of leaves or little metal. Now picture, instead of that, picture the faces of people in your family. Picture your friends, your coworkers, people you see every day. Picture them experiencing eternal joy in heaven instead of everlasting suffering in hell. Christian, would you rearrange your life for that? That'll never, ever fade away. Ever. And not just that. The whole picture here is Paul, even the way he talks about him not wanting to be disqualified, he's talking about the very purpose of his salvation. Are you hearing what God is saying to us? You and I, we have been saved from our sin by Jesus in order to lead other people to be saved from their sin by Jesus. This is why we're here, right? If God just intended to save us, he'd immediately bring us to himself. We could be free from all the evil and sin and sorrow and suffering in this world. But he's not done that. He's left us here. Not just left us here. He's put us here. He's put you in that school. He has sovereignly put you in that workplace, in that apartment, that home. 
He's put you in that restaurant this week or that store. He's put us in this city right now. Why? So that we might be servants. Pointing people all around us to eternal life in Jesus. This is why we are here. You see how fundamentally important this is? And how so often we can miss it. How there's an adversary who wants us to miss this every single day. Who wants us to get so busy doing all kinds of good things that we forsake that which matters most in eternity. See it? God calls you to reorient your conscience around how you can best lead people near you and far from you to Jesus. So here's what I want to do before we close. I want us to think about like, re- practically reorienting our consciences in these ways. And I want to give us two challenges, and I want to give you a couple minutes just to write down reflections, if you're able, but to think, not just to hear this word, Lord, how are we going to do this? So let's start by thinking about people who are far from us. So let me go over here real quick. At uh, Secret Church, um, in, uh, a couple weeks ago, we, uh, pull this up here, we launched a tool called Stratus for the broader church. And Stratus stands for Strategy for Unreached Synergy. Basically helping the church think about people in the world, over three billion of them, over three billion of them, over three billion people, men, women, children, just like us, who have little to no knowledge of this gospel right now. They've not been reached with the gospel. It's not that they've heard it and rejected it. It's they haven't even heard it. And many of them living amidst urgent physical needs, amidst a lack of clean water or lack of food or lack of education or medical care or in the middle of war, many, many things that are making it harder for the gospel to get to them. And so you can, you can go to stratus.earth and you can play around, learn all kinds of stuff about this. But basically the way this tool works is it takes data from all these different sources. So World Health Organizations, UN, uh, Global Terrorism Index, OPEC. So all kinds of data on physical needs in the world and then combines it with data on where's the gospel gone from the Joshua Project or uh, uh, Open Doors, where's the church being persecuted. So it puts it all together, combines it all together and creates what's called a stratus index. And so basically it ranks the countries in the world just based purely on data on where the most urgent spiritual and physical needs are. And on this globe, the places where the most urgent spiritual and physical needs are are more red, and then the places where the, where, that are not as marked by urgent spiritual and physical need are more green. It's not that there's not need anywhere in the world. It's all relative. And you'll see all across North Africa and the Middle East and Asia here, places where Many people, most of the three billion people who've never heard the gospel live, and many of them surrounded by urgent physical needs. And you'll see over here on the right a ranking of these different countries. I'll try to make it a little bit bigger so you can see it a little bit clearer. But over here, like number one, when you think about urgent spiritual and physical need in the world, think about Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Maldives, Sudan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Mauritania, Mali. And what you can do is you can 
zoom in on any of these countries and you can start to find more information about what it's gonna take to get the gospel to Afghanistan. Like what are the needs in Afghanistan? And as you kind of focus on that country, you can start to see all the different needs, all these different data points broken down into uh, what is keeping people in Afghanistan from hearing the gospel. You can click on and, and see a picture of the people groups in Afghanistan. These are all the people groups in Afghanistan and you'll notice all of them are dark red, meaning none of them have access to the gospel right now. And you can do this for any country in the world. So you can go up here, I'll just search for another country like uh, India, which has been in the news a lot recently, especially in light of uh, challenges with uh, COVID. But here's all the people groups. It'll take a second for them to zoom in here. Maybe. There's a ton of people groups in India. Um, there they are. So all these people groups, little to no access to the gospel. And, and what, what this site does is to, it's intended to open eyes in the church. To, here's where the gospel has it gone. Here's what it's gonna take to get the gospel there. If we're gonna make the gospel known in each of these countries, what are the things that are gonna have to, to, to happen there? I would encourage you just one practical way that you can use this like on a daily basis in your family. This is what our family is working through right now. You can click over here and there's a whole video that will lead you to pray for each of these countries that are on the high, uh, top of this list, the Stratus Index list. So you can walk through that video as a, as a family, like it'll take five, 10 minutes around the table. Just start to be a part of what God's doing among the nations through praying and doing this in your life, your marriage, your family. There's so much we could walk through here. But when you look at this, the, uh, the question is, okay, if somebody's gonna reach India with the gospel, then they're gonna have to serve the people of India. Right, somebody's got to rearrange their life to get the gospel to them. Somebody's got to relinquish some rights if we're going to get the gospel to Afghanistan. So here's what I want to do. So now to come back to this text. So based on that, I want, I want to give you a picture and challenge you to think through in your life what are two or three practical ways that God is calling you to reorient your conscience around leading people in places like that to Jesus. Now you might immediately be thinking, what can I do? Well, that's what I want you to think about. And you can, you can pray. You can do what I just, just said to do and you can wake up five or 10 minutes earlier. You can spend some time at the dinner table or before you go to bed doing this. You can participate, you can be a part of what God's doing in North Korea, like right there, reorient your life around being involved in what God's doing in different places in the world. You can think, well, I, I have money God's given me. How can I use it for the spread of the gospel in places like that? How can I relinquish my rights to get more stuff in order to get the gospel to places where they haven't even heard the gospel? It's one of the things we talked about at the Secret Church. We give billions of resources as the broader church. And all kinds of things on buildings and on staff and on programs and all these things. Then we give a tiny percentage of those 
resources to work around the world. And then what we talked about at Secret Church is even out of those resources that we give around the world, 99% of the resources we give around the world approximately go to places that are green on that map. And we give about 1% of our missions resources to places where the gospel's not yet gone. Like that needs to change. It's got to change. What we were saying is Secret Church, we want to be a part of changing that. We want to be involved in what God's doing in Afghanistan and India and Somalia and Bhutan and Maldives and Pakistan and North Korea. So we can, we can give in different ways. Maybe we can go on a short-term mission trip when those start to open back up. Maybe some of you, God's calling to talk with our global team about getting into that pipeline. How can I learn more about moving to one of those places? Now, I know, let me just put this out there. I know, and even, even mentioning this, putting this on the screen, some will sigh and say, we talk about global missions too much as a church. But brothers and sisters, with over three billion people who have no knowledge of the name of Jesus, we're far from talking too much about how to get the gospel to them. Far from it. You, you, you read and you see pictures from India and Nepal this last week of makeshift funeral pyres and all these bodies burning of people who haven't even heard the gospel. You won't think, we need to talk less about getting the gospel to them. Why do we talk about getting the gospel to them? And no, this is what Jesus has told us to talk about. Make disciples of all the nations. This is what we're part of. What we get to be a part of, making the greatest news in the world, known to everybody in the world. Yes, we talk about this. And, and we talk about doing this right here. So now make the connection. Make the connection. We said, okay, if we're going to reach people in Afghanistan with the gospel, we got to rearrange our lives, rearrange our rights. In order to do that, we got to eat different things. Muslim people groups, they don't eat pork, so leave barbecue behind. We're going to dress differently. We're going to speak and learn a different language. Now, now transfer that same mindset into the way you think about your workplace or your school or your neighborhood. What can I do? What can I do to lead these people to Jesus? What do I need to do? What do I need to do different? So this is where I identify three practical, two to three practical ways that God is calling you to reorient your conscience around leading people near you to Jesus. So now think, what's God calling you to do in your home or your school or your workplace? What intentional steps is God calling you to take with this particular person or that group of people? Hey, maybe God's calling you to pray over every single person in your school or your workplace, your neighborhood every day or every week. You start to proactively look for opportunities to share with them. This is what we do as Christians. This is what we do with the greatest news in the world. We relinquish our rights and we rearrange our lives to make this good news known. So I want you to just, even if you're a Christian, just start thinking, maybe even start writing down two or three practical ways. What's, what's coming to your mind right now? And as you do that, as you do that in your life, I, I want to speak especially to those of you who, who, again, may not be followers of Jesus. I hope that in all this talk about leading people to Jesus, you hear my heart, our heart today, the heart of God today. He loves you. God loves you. So much that he has given his son to die on the cross for your sins. He wants you to have a life in him. He wants you to be saved from your sin forever. He wants you to be forgiven of all your sin and have eternal life in heaven with him. He wants that for you. And so we, as people who worship God, want to be a reflection of his love. We love you. We love you. We want 
We want nothing more than for you to experience eternal life in Jesus. And we want to give our lives toward that end. I would be remiss if I didn't invite you today, not just invite you, urge you with everything in me. Like, trust in Jesus today. Experience eternal life in him. And then become a part of a people who see ourselves as servants in this world with that good news. So will you bow your heads with me? All across this room and other locations, just bow your heads and would you just, just pray right now? If you've never put your faith in Jesus, let this be the moment. Let this be the moment where you just say to God, God, I need you to forgive me of my sins. I today believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I put my faith in Jesus today. I want eternal life with you. This is what it means to enter into relationship with God, to place your faith in him. Let this moment be that moment. Today be that day. And for all who know eternal life in Jesus, can we just pray, God, help us. God, help us to reorient our consciences, to rearrange our lives, to relinquish rights, to live so that other people might know this good news. God, remove fear from us. Help us to see with an eternal perspective and to live every day this week toward that end. God, we pray that the fruit would be many people coming to know you. God, we pray for that. We pray for friends and family members and co-workers and classmates. God, we pray. Neighbors, people we'll meet this week that we hadn't even planned on meeting. I think about one store I was in recently and just clearly you had arranged that meeting. And we pray that you would arrange those kind of meetings all over the city this week that people might come to know you. And God, we pray that you use McLean Bible Church for the spread of this good news to the ends of the earth. God, we pray for people in Afghanistan and India and Somalia and Pakistan. God, we pray for the spread of this good news through our lives, here and there. Help us to live, help us to live for what matters forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.